Welcome to this episode of the Fish Bites Podcast. I'm Aram Layton, writer for fishstripes.com, and I'm joined by Tim Healy, Marlins beat writer of the Sun Sentinel. Tim, thanks for joining us today. Anytime. Thank you very much. So, Tim, uh, tell us a little about yourself, how you ended up in South Florida writing for the Sentinel. Uh, well, I, I started writing for the Sun Sentinel last summer. Uh, before that, I was living in Boston. The spot was open, and I applied and eventually moved on down. It was a big change for me, being a, a New England guy all my life. Uh, but uh, so far, so good. It's been a, an eventful almost year. And uh, how would you compare South Florida sports to those in Boston? <laughs> I don't want to uh, put anybody off here, but it, it just it, it seems like a drop off to me. You know, in Boston, everybody loves every team. And in South Florida, it seems like not so much. Obviously, Dolphins are going to be number one. And then, you know, people got it really into the heat this past winter. The Panthers sort of fell on their face when they were expected to be good. And we'll see what happens with the Marlins this year. But uh, I think of South Florida. South, South Florida to me is like pretty much any market where if a team is winning, people will get, will get into it. So, and you know, in my small sample size here, that that's held up. And it's interesting because for people that cover sports, obviously you do on, on a grander scale. In South Florida, it seems like a lot of your readership depends on how well the team's doing because all of a sudden all these fans come out of the woodworks and, you know, South Florida teams end up with a huge amount of support when they're doing well. But like you said, when things aren't going well, fans seem to disappear. And I actually recently wrote a piece on the Marlins attendance woes and, and how it's been since 93. And it, even when they were winning, it seemed to still be sporadic. And after those winning seasons, it would drop right off. But anyways, we're going to talk about this season. Speaking of struggling, the Marlins started off pretty hot at 10-8 and 8 with a tough schedule. And a lot of people were encouraged by the Marlins start through 18 games with the difficult schedule they had, but they get into that softer part of the schedule and the Marlins seem to really be struggling. What do you see different from that first 18 games with the Marlins to the last seven or so? It's, it's the offense. You know, if you look at this, uh, you know, losers of six out of their last seven games in, they had that one explosion Sunday afternoon against the, the pirates, the Justin Bohr powered offensive explosion. But other than that, in, in five out of their six losses, they scored two or fewer runs. And that's just not going to get it done, especially with a rotation that isn't really going to hold teams to one or zero runs most nights or any nights. So to me, it's, it's, all, it's all in the lineup right now, this funk. I was going to ask you that because everyone was worried about the rotation going into the season, and no one seemed to be voicing any concerns about the lineup. You know, because you have Yelich, Stanton, Ozuna, Real Muto all hitting the ball pretty well. But when these guys are struggling or when the offense is struggling, they all struggle together. And the beauty of baseball is not everyone has to be hot at the same time. If a couple guys are slumping, you have a couple other guys that pick them up and hit the ball. But they had the explosion, like you said, a couple games ago. And everyone hit the ball together, even though it was mostly bore. But when they're struggling, it seems like everyone's struggling together. And with that weak rotation, they really need to put up runs. But what do you think about the bullpen? Is is the bullpen holding up its end of the bargain? Or could the bullpen be doing a little better? Uh, I, I think the bullpen uh, has been very, very good uh, this season. Obviously, if you lean on it every game, 
it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to save you, uh, you know, seven days out of seven. But uh, in terms of overall, it's hard to point to the bullpen and say, ah, yes, that's the issue. I mean, collectively, they have a 3.28 ERA this year. That's, you know, top 10 in baseball. So you're in the top third, uh, you know, of all 30 teams. Even it's it's easy to you know think of one night or another night and those bullpen meltdowns will probably stick out in your mind more memorably than uh, a slow offensive night because that's the that's the lasting image right like a, a go ahead home run for the other team as opposed to you know a one two three inning you know a bunch of those all night for the lineup but overall. You know, I can't really put any of this in the bullpen yet. The ERA is surprising because there's some guys that are struggling. You know, David Phelps has not done too well, and Tazawa has been a disaster so far this season. But the top guys in the bullpen, like Bearclaw and Ziegler and, and Ramos, seem to be doing really well in the back end. So you're right, it can't be put on the bullpen. But do you think the Marlins might give up on Tazawa at some point? And do you think... Jarlin Garcia might be in the bullpen for the long run, even if Jeff Locke comes back. Uh, th- there's a lot of moving pieces there. As far as far as Tazawa, uh, he signed to a two-year, twelve million dollar deal, so things would have to get really ugly for the uh, Marlins to cut him loose. At least this year, you know, if he comes out next year and is you know falling on his face again, then that would make a little more sense since they would owe him less money at that point. But for now, you know, a month into the season. I don't think that's really on the radar yet. That said, I don't really expect a ton from Tazawa over the next two years. Uh, as, as far as Harlan Garcia goes, uh, he's been very impressive. Mattingly has raved about him. Uh, his presence has allowed Mattingly to acknowledge that it's kind of nice to have a lefty, even though the Marlins uh, you know, didn't open the season with one. Now that Mattingly has one, he's willing to say uh, it, it is a nice little luxury. Uh whether Harlan Garcia stays or not depends on uh, a bunch of things. Obviously, Jeff Locke is going to come back at some point. He hasn't started a rehab assignment yet, but maybe toward the end of this month, we could see him back. Uh, and then there's also Nick Wickren, who, you know, if Edinson Volquez goes on the DL, uh, Wickren could be up for a couple of days before they need a starter on Sunday. So uh, a, a lot of moving pieces there. Uh, but whether or not Garcia stays up the whole way, uh, the Marlins like being able to have him, Wickren, Brian Ellington, Hunter Cervenka, guys who they can call up and option down as many times as they need to. Uh, that that flexibility goes a long way. Definitely. And, and a lot of people criticize that Marlins bullpen for not having a lefty to start the season. And it looks like the Marlins may have found that lefty for the rest of the year uh, because Dustin McGowan had great reverse splits last season, but he does not seem to be getting outs at the rate he did, especially with left-handed hitters. Anyways, what everyone seems to be talking about right now is the potential Marlins sale. There's been a lot of conflicting reports. One day the team is considered sold to Jeb Bush and Derek Jeter. Now we're taking a step back and the team might not be close to being sold, and now there's another group bidding. So what's the latest that you've heard on this potential Marlin sale? Well, the latest is what uh, Sun Sentinel's Dave Hyde first reported last night, which is, uh, yes, 
that Jeb Bush and Derek Jeter are uh, very much in it, and they it's far from final. But the second group, led by Tag Romney, who is Mitt Romney's oldest son, and including Hall of Famer Tom Glavin, uh, that group is very much in it. That group bid more than the Jeb Jeter group. And uh, from what I understand, MLB is in the process of vetting uh, those groups, uh, who actually has the money, who are the individuals putting up the money, because MLB obviously doesn't want uh, sketchy people involved in ownership. So that's a a long process. Um, I don't expect this sale process to drag out too much longer, but uh, it's a very fluid situation. So much so that uh, at any moment, I expect my phone to blow up with, uh, you know, more more breaking news, more developments on that front. You're right about the MLB not wanting a sketchy ownership after what happened with the Mets, uh, the last thing the league needs right now. If, if you were the average Marlins fan, who would you want, based on what you know, to purchase this team? That's a good question, and it's probably not one I can answer with much confidence because the thing about uh, change in ownership is it, it can change everything. It, it's a complete unknown, even though, you know, with the Jeb Jeter group, sure, uh, on the surface level, it feels like people know these guys. Uh, Derek Jeter's Derek Jeter, Hall, future Hall of Famer shortstop, probably a bunch of Yankees fans down here. It's hard to not like Derek Jeter. And it's hard to not like the idea of Derek Jeter being involved in the Marlins. And same with Jeb Bush, governor of Florida. Uh, obviously, his presidential run didn't go well in the last election cycle. But, you know, he's still a big name down here uh, at, and elsewhere. Uh, so it's easy to say, oh, Jeb Jeter, that'd be great. They're, the, they're definitely going to, you know, turn things around, whatever you want to say. But... If the Tag Romney Tom Glavin group is already putting up more money or bidding more money, you know it. Who's to say that that the Marlins wouldn't ultimately be better off with that group? So knowing as little as we do about the way either of these groups would run the show, uh, it's hard to say who would be better off for the Marlins. Although I know that the Jeb Jeter thing is a very attractive on paper. I, I will say that definitely and. Like you said, the prospects of just Derek Jeter being part of your franchise seems to be something that would excite fans. But you recently just wrote an article explaining that Jeb Bush said he wouldn't make immediate changes because, for one, I mean, the the payroll can't change right away because you need money to come in. The revenue isn't just going to change from a sale at the snap of a finger. And the current TV deal isn't up till 2019, so that deal won't change for a couple more years also. So Jeb Bush said if he does purchase a team, things aren't going to change much. It's going to be a process. So I think it's important for fans to temper down their expectations a little bit because at the end of the day, the change in ownership isn't just going to make a huge spike in payroll and all of a sudden the Marlins are going after Manny Machado in free agency and throwing $300 million his way. Absolutely. That's a, it was very interesting. One, that Jeb Bush would even get into this degree of detail publicly before anything is final. But two, his comments were very interesting. He, he noted that, you know, it, he, he, he was preaching patient team building and noted that spending doesn't necessarily equal winning. And really, 
from a, a guy who might be taking over a baseball team as the fan base of that baseball team, that's that's what you want to hear. That's some level-headed, smart thinking. Now, some people maybe have their hopes up and think Jeb and Jeter are going to come in and you know spend a lot of money and turn into the Yankees. But if you think about those Derek Jeter Yankee teams, the early ones at least in the '90s during the '90s dynasty, you know they weren't. They were, of course, you know, big market team, big spenders. But the core of that team was homegrown: Derek Jeter, Andy Pettit, Bernie Williams, Jorge Posada. You know, it's it's that sort of team building that it sounds like Jeb Bush would uh, look for in uh, you know a theoretical Jeb Jeter Marlins franchise. That Yankees team right now looks a lot like that similar mold with the young guys coming up. They did a really – Cashman did a great job of getting the old expensive contracts out of there and kind of rejuvenating that team and mixing the veterans with the young guys. And uh, that seems to be a, a great model and something the Marlins seem to be attempting to do. But the issue with the Marlins is their farm system. and. You know, the Marlins just don't have the prospects to call up, and the homegrown guys are what you need. But all those homegrown guys are now on the team with Yelich, Ozuna, and Stanton are, are all up, and they've been up for a few years now, Real Muto as well. And they just really haven't had an influx of prospects since those guys were called up. And I think a big issue of that, and I'm curious what you think, my take on it is that. Obviously, some of it's chalked up to poor drafting, but every time the Marlins seemed to be somewhat in contention at the deadline, they were willing to part with some fairly solid prospects for for rental arms. You saw it happen uh, recently, just with with Latos the year before, but but more recently with Andrew Kashner and for Fernando Rodney, and these guys ended up not even doing well for the Marlins, and they were rentals, and and they're on different teams uh, today. So, do you think that? buying at the deadline is a mistake if you're not in a guaranteed position for success and you have a thin farm system? Uh, that's a, that's really tough, especially for, I mean, we'll see what happens over the next two months with this Marlins team and the ownership. Uh, but so let's say, you know, the Marlins are in a reasonable spot to buy, to be buyers. They don't have a whole lot to buy with. You know, it's it's they already have a hundred and fifteen million dollar payroll. It's a franchise record, and it's not clear uh, how much wiggle room there is there for midseason additions. Never mind, you know, potential ramifications of the sale, wherever that may be. You know, there are a million variables that could go into potential midseason trades. But then the, you're right, the farm system aspect of it. The farm system is uh, widely considered to be among the worst in baseball. And all there are some nice pieces down there. You know, if you think of Brian Anderson at third base for Jacksonville, Dylan Peters, who is hurt, will pro- will miss most of this year with a with a broken thumb. He was also with Jacksonville. Those are some reasonable prospects, mid level prospects who I, I I guess could fetch something on the mid season trade market. Uh, you know, it also goes into where you would be trying to upgrade. Uh, and if they're looking to trade a couple of prospects for another, you know, middle of the rotation arm, I don't know how much of an upgrade that really is. And you hit on my next question here. I was going to ask you, how do you improve this team? Should the Marlins be buyers at the deadline? Well, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, you know, pe- people talk about how, uh, I've seen some chatter lately about how base- in baseball overall, maybe, 
GMs don't need to wait until, you know, the end of July to really make those moves. Maybe they can do it earlier. But as far as this Marlins team goes, you, you kind of do need to wait because you don't know what it is. Uh, the, the Marlins front office has very high expectations for this group. Uh, you know, as, as you were touching on the, the position player core, you know, come through the Marlins farm system and now they're established major league veterans who should be ready to win. Uh, you know, what's holding this team back is is the pitching. Uh, you know, of course, you can't talk about the pitching without talking about Jose Fernandez. And from a pure baseball perspective, you know, forget the human side of it all. Uh, losing Jose Fernandez changed everything for this team, in my opinion, for, you know, in terms of readiness to compete. Because, uh, you know, if you add him to the top of this rotation, then it's a, it's a whole nother story. But without him, you know, it, it, I guess that's gets in a larger conversation overall about what this team is going to be this year. Uh, you know, and we're going to learn a lot over the next couple of months uh, about where this position player core can can take this team overall. And going into now what most fans probably don't want to hear, should the Marlins be sellers at the deadline? What pieces do you sell and why? That's a good question. Uh, and again, it sort of rounds back to to ownership. Let's say theoretically uh, the new owner owners are in by the trade deadline and the team's under 500 and, you know, in a clear selling position, it could be everybody's on the table. Now, some, some of those guys are, you want to keep more than others. You know, Christian Yelich is under a, uh, an inexpensive long-term deal. JT Real Muto is under team control for several more years. To me, those are the two big pieces. Uh, Stan obviously has a gigantic contract that would be hard to move. But other than that, I don't know who who's on. You know, Marcelo Zuna could be an attractive piece, especially if he has a good first half. Like he is, I mean, he's been up and down this year, but last year had a good first half. If he can do something similar to that, there's a lot of teams that would be interested in him. Uh, you know, David Phelps could be an attractive bullpen piece for teams. Derek Dietrich is a you know versatile guy teams could want. Uh, if the Marlins are sellers. Uh, which probably won't be the case if ownerships, if the sale isn't complete, but if the sale is complete and they're sellers. And, and I think we could see a lot of changes if the new ownership is looking to move very quickly in a particular direction in their own, in their own direction, put their own stamp on the team. Definitely. And a big thing that I, I talk about a lot, I don't have a lot of patience for Danny Echeverria, and yeah. anyone who listens to our podcast knows that. Should Jeter be part of the new ownership group, it's been said that he, he will be head of you know baseball operations. Jeter obviously being a franchise shortstop his entire career, I'd like to think that he would put an importance on having a cornerstone shortstop. Should the Marlins want a new shortstop do you think it's best to go for a shortstop through free agency or through trade or try and draft their next superstar shortstop or give a Danny Echeverria more time to try and figure it out? Well, like you and like a lot of Marlins Twitter, I'm not a big Danny Echeverria fan. Uh, his offense is, uh, is rough. Obviously, he's pretty good on defense, very good on defense, very flashy, makes a lot of fun-looking plays. But in terms of potential next 
you know, franchise shortstop, the way you do that and the way you see every team doing it, you know, in this recent burst of very good young shortstops in baseball is either through the draft or through international, you know, an international signing. Uh, In terms of if you're trying to add a real, you know, face the team type franchise shortstop for your free agency, that's probably going to be out of the Marlins uh, budget. You know, never mind the fact that they don't come on the free agent market very often. Uh, so it, it's it could be even next month during the draft, the Marlins take some shortstop that nobody really knows anything about and we don't really hear from for three or four or five years, could be that guy. So in terms of, you know, a potential Jeter running baseball operations, if that comes to fruition, uh I would imagine he would want, you know, a cornerstone piece up the middle like any franchise would. But he would also understand the patience that takes to really find one of those gems. With the draft coming up, the the Marlins typically like to pick a pitcher in the first round. They do it almost every single year besides the Josh Naylor pick, who they clearly didn't like that much because they were okay with moving him for that rental we mentioned earlier and Andrew Kashner. What do you think the Marlins will do in the first round? Do you think they will go with a pitcher once again? This draft seems very right-handed heavy. And uh, something the Marlins the Marlins usually gravitate towards left-handed pitchers, but they've also shown that they like the power arms with Tyler Kolek, or did they learn their lesson? Uh, well, in terms of what the Marlins will do with their 13th overall pick next month, that's a crapshoot. Uh, they're still in the process of deciding that, and uh, – Personally, I haven't followed much of the draft prospects except for the top of the top. You know, a name like Hunter Green gets a lot of attention. I wrote about him the other day. He's a kid from uh, Giancarlo Stanton's high school in California. Uh, but, you know, Hunter Green, for example, is probably going to go first overall. And if he doesn't, he's probably going to go second overall. So he's not really an option for the Marlins. But you'll hear, you know, the, Mar- the Marlins are going to do what every team is going to do. They're going to take the best available uh, player. Uh, they have lean pitchers, you know, a lot through the years, you know, since they took Fr- Jose Fernandez in 2011, uh, I think five out of their five out of their s- seven first round picks since then have been pitchers, uh, including Braxton Garrett last year, their top overall prospect. Uh, so, you know, it depends on who who's on the board who's available and who, who they like, you know, by the time they get a chance to pick. It it seems like the Marlins always like to take arms, like I said, but I would, I pushed in the, in the previous podcast, I was mentioning that I, I would love to see the Marlins take a shortstop with that pick. And because the, the Marlins don't have a, a shortstop of the future in that farm system right now. And there seems to be a growing sentiment that, Danny Echeverria isn't the guy, and I'd like to at least see a backup plan at some point. I doubt D. Gordon ever moves back to shortstop because he seems really settled in at second. Right. So that solution needs to come from the draft, and it should be interesting to see how the Marlins go about that. So I've seen that you are working on a book right now that is going to be released in about a month. Can you tell us a little about that book? Sure, sure. I, I, wrote, I worked on this last year. Again, yep, it's coming out next month. Uh, it's called Hometown Hardball, and it's uh, it's about minor league baseball stadiums in the Northeast. 
as I mentioned, I, you know, I grew up in the Northeast, grew up in Connecticut. Uh, I'm a huge minor league baseball fan. Uh, and before I moved to Florida last year, I started this project where I visited a bunch of the affiliated minor league stadiums in the Northeast. There, there are 27 in all. I visited a bunch and wrote about all of them in this book. And the the goal with hometown hardball is to tell what tell readers what a given day at each ballpark is like. Uh, you, you'll see a lot of uh, the same stuff in minor league ballparks, but all of them, especially in the Northeast, where there are a lot of old, old ballparks, all of them have their own flair or tradition or, or place in the history book. So that was a lot of fun to work on, and uh, I'm looking forward to it coming out. Well, that's what's so awesome about baseball, and it, it sounds amazing. I'm excited to read it. The amazing part about baseball is every stadium, MLB or minor league, is distinct, and there's no regulations in terms of you know the outfield dimensions and the stands and everything like that. So you don't hear about people saying, oh, I want to go to every football stadium. I want to go to every basketball arena. But right. my, my father and I, from a young age, we set out to go to every single MLB stadium, and we got to about 17. So, and, and I'm still working on it and I'm going to try and get as close to finishing up this summer. But what's amazing is just how distinct every park is. And, and next I wanted to do that with the minor league park. So I'm looking forward to reading that book because it really is awesome how unique every stadium is, especially in the minor leagues, because it seems to be a, a much more loose environment and a lot more fun. Sure. Yeah. It's uh, definitely less serious. You know, from a player development standpoint, wins and losses don't matter too too much. Uh, you know, in the majors, if you go to a, a home game, you're probably bummed if the team loses. But in the in the minors, you don't see people really caring as much. But uh, there's a lot of goofiness going on. You'll see a lot of weird uh, attention grabbing promotions, and it's a lot of fun to keep track of. Usually on our podcast, we wrap up with a hot take, oh, and <laughs> my previous hot take was that Justin Bohr wasn't the first baseman of the future, and he also shut me up right after that by <laughs> by absolutely just mashing, so that's what I get for calling out Justin Bohr, but I know I'm kind of blindsiding you here, but what's your Marlins hot take? Hmm. It's against my nature to make uh, grand proclamations, but I, I will say, and you know, I don't know how much of a hot take this is. I don't know what the reception would be, but I think Dan Straley could be the the best pitcher in this rotation. Obviously, we saw his fourteen strikeout game a couple weeks ago, and you know, he's among the league leaders in strikeout percentage. He's leading all National League starters in batting average against. Uh, so I I think. Uh, there's there's more in there. He had a breakout year last year. I think there's more in there, and he could be the, you know, not an ace really, but uh, the number the best pitcher out of these five. And a lot of people were were a little worried about that trade, saying that one the Marlins may have overpaid, and two that Dan Straley's season last year might not be replicable because a lot of the advanced statistics showed that maybe those stats were a little fluky and it might not be sustainable, but so far he's looked, he's looked decent. He got touched up a little bit in the beginning, but I, I agree. He's definitely shown that he has the potential to have the best stuff in this rotation, especially with Volquez struggling and Conley being streaky way in Chen. I think, you know what you're going to get now. He's, he seems to be settled in um, a different way in Chen than he was last year battling injury, 
but he's definitely throwing a lot of quality starts, but he's not going to strike out 14 guys. And Dan Straley, like you said, has shown the ability to do that. So that's very interesting. And I think the Marlins will definitely need someone to, to step up and be that leader in the rotation. So thank you so much for joining us, Tim. And that's Hometown Hardball, the book that is going to be released, you said, in a month, correct? Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, it was a pleasure having you on. Absolutely, anytime. And this is going to wrap it up for our third episode of the Fish Bites podcast of this season. Fishstripes.com, your place for all things Miami Marlins. Have a good one, everyone.